Tonight we're looking at Psalm 19. If you're a note taker, I'll, I'll tell you this. Uh, the three things we're going to kind of keep our eyes peeled for is that you are hardwired for glory, for awe. It's built into your DNA to be attracted the way a moth is attracted to the moon. You are attracted to glory. And then the second thing is that God is revealing his glory all around you, 360 degrees. You can't go anywhere. There's not a minute of your day where you're not being inundated by glory. And then the last thing we'll look at is uh, you can know God and his glory more than you do tonight. Whether you don't know God at all or whether you've known him your whole life, you can know him more than you do tonight already. Why don't you stand up? We'll read the passage and we'll start. And this is Psalm 19, a psalm of David. David writes, The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words and no sound is heard from them. But their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words to the ends of the world. In the heavens, God has pitched a tent for the sun. It's like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber. Like a champion rejoicing to run his course. It rises at one end of the heavens and it makes its circuit over to the other. Nothing is deprived of its warmth. The law of the Lord is perfect. Refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord, they're trustworthy. They make the wise simple. The precepts of the Lord, they're right. They give joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant. They give light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure. Enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, honey from the honeycomb. And by them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. But who can discern their own errors? Forgive me my hidden faults. Keep your servant from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of great transgression. May these words of my mouth and this meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's play. Lord, this, these words that you speak to us tonight, because we need to hear these words tonight, they, they make sense to us maybe. We see beautiful stuff all around us. We live in a beautiful city. We meet with beautiful people. We hear beautiful things. But Father, our hearts, I'm not sure when the last time they felt a thrill is. I'm not sure when the last time we've been amazed was. I'm not sure when the last time uh, my friend's jaw has dropped when they thought of you or saw you in your glory. And so we have a glory problem. And Father, we come to you small and weak and needy now. And we ask that even the next few minutes, even Psalm 19 might be a tool in your hand to help us see again. We need it. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Take a seat. Thanks.
The most exciting part of being a dad for me right now is also the saddest part of being a dad for me right now. It's exciting because uh, Eli, our oldest, he's about 18 months, 18 months. I'm getting a nod. He's 18 months, about a year and a half old. And he's at a stage in his life where literally the first words out of his mouth when we walk into his room to feed him his bottle in the morning and to get him dressed. uh, He looks at us. He says, what's that? He says, what's this? And that begins what is probably several times an hour throughout the rest of his day. Every single object he sees or that passes him by. Doesn't matter if it's an empty Dr. Pepper can in the ground or a dog or a bird flying through the air or a piece of trash or a toy that he plays with every day. He picks it up and with the biggest, widest eyes and astonishment, he asks me, what's that? What's this? Eli lives in a glorious world. Everything is fascinating. Everything is interesting. Everything shines. Everything glimmers. Everything is amazing. And he goes through his days. It's like a roller coaster of adventure. What's that? What's this? And that's why this is also one of the saddest parts of being a father for me. Because I see in Eli, and Anna sees in Eli, he is hardwired for glory. His eyes were designed to pick up on it, to be astonished, to be amazed, to marvel at his world. But I see in Eli, every time he asks me that question, the sad thing is, is I stoop down and I say, that's a weed, or that's a roly-poly, or that's a bird up there. And, And it confronts me once again with the reality that I don't see the world the way my 18-month-old sees the world. And it's very sad for me because I know Psalm 19. It's one of my favorite psalms. I've memorized a good portion of it. I know that I'm hardwired for glory. I know that God has put receptors all over my body, my heart, my soul, my emotions to perceive glory. I know I'm supposed to pick up on these things that Eli picks up on. I know I live in a glorious world, but I don't see it. I don't pick up on those things anymore. And to me, that's, that's sad. It reminds me of what it was like uh, when I was a little kid. But I can't see the world the way Eli sees it. And I'm sad because of that. And I think you're sad too. But I'm not sure if you know you're sad. You might just feel bored with life. Or you might just feel so distracted or so busy at the pace that life's at right now that you don't really think about it. But I think if you peel back the layers of where you're at right now, most of you, all of you maybe, beneath the sadness, beneath the distraction, beneath the boredom, the longing to be thrilled again, I think there's a sadness deep down inside. And the reason why I think there's a sadness there is because I think you know deep down, just like I do, whether you're a believer not a believer, don't know what you are. You know deep down that you have trouble seeing the God you were made for. You know you have trouble seeing glory. The world seems to have gone a little bit from high definition and color when you were a kid to more black and white and blurry now, right? And so even when you see a kid and you see their fascination or you see them playing with their toys, their imagination come back, come out, it makes you miss that a little bit. Let me ask you this. When's the last time you've been amazed? 
When's the last time you have been so captivated by a smell or a sight or a sound or a feeling or a memory that you lost track of time? You got caught up in the moment, swept away. It's kind of an out-of-body experience. You were blown away by some moment, some glory, some beautiful thing. When's the last time you have felt so thrilled? Your body felt it, your mind felt it, your emotions felt it all at the same time. When's the last time you've been amazed at church? When you've thought about God, you've read the Bible, you've heard someone else talk about God. When's the last time you were swept off your feet in astonishment? What's that? Like a little 18-month-old. For a lot of us, I'm willing to bet it's been a long, long time. Or maybe it's been kind of recent. Maybe there's a few of you, maybe all of us have had that one moment. Where you have been amazed recently. You saw a movie that completely you lost track of time. It's like three hours long. It's like a Martin Scorsese movie. And it's like super long and you didn't even notice it. You could be like that could be another hour long. And it was glorious. You had a piece of chocolate cake. I'm not kidding. And you had the thought come into your mind. This is divine. I'm in heaven. And you worshipped. And that's a good thing. God designed seven layer chocolate cake. It's supposed to be received as glorious and beautiful. And it was amazing to you. Hopefully you didn't lose track of time and eat the whole thing, but you get what I'm saying. Or you, I don't know, some, some odd lecture. Because I imagine most lectures at, at your classes aren't that captivating. But maybe there was that one lecture, that one speech, or maybe a lecture in your perspectives class. And the speaker had you from the first minute. It's a physiology class, a biology class, a literature class. And you saw the world in a whole new light after that. You saw the body in a whole new light after that. It grabbed you and it wouldn't let you go. You saw something glorious. And it was fun. Because when it's glorious, you don't have to work to pay attention. Right? You are drawn in. You're sucked in. Whether it was recent or a long time ago that you saw something glorious, that you had an experience with glory, Glory's harder to see as you grow up, right? So have you seen a kid playing recently and you had the thought, man, I wish I could go back. I wish I could have an imagination like that. I wish a little yellow school bus toy would be fun for me for like six months long instead of what all we have to do to thrill and excite ourselves now and and to, to bump into glory these days. The reason why glory is harder to see the older you get is because, have you heard the phrase familiarity breeds contempt? You heard the phrase psychologists use called visual lethargy? Visual lethargy or familiarity breeding contempt, what it means is the more you are exposed to something, the less you see it. When we moved to our new house about a year and a half ago, uh, my commute to work changed, my drive to campus, still about four minutes long. But now with my new house, when I drive due east and then I drive due north, I see the Oregon Mountains and the sunrise light, and it's glorious. And so those first few days, I was taking pictures. I would pull over. I would Instagram it. I would, like, tell my other RUF guys, like, I live in the best city. Does your city have those? Then I would drive north, and it's the Doña Anas, which are the most beautiful of all the mountains at sunset. So when I'm driving home and I see those in my rearview mirror, And the sun set over the the West Desert. It's glorious. And I stopped and I noticed it. 
And it was beautiful. It did something to me. But guess what? I Instagrammed one time. I told my buddies about it one time. Because now I drive by it every single day. I bet you don't notice the mountains very much. I bet there's every now and then a sunset. You're like, wow, that's amazing. But we don't, they disappear to us even though they're still there. Glory's harder to see because it can become so familiar, especially the kind of glory that surrounds us in the world, in creation all around us that God has put in every single direction. We grow used to it. And so the older you get, the more you have to work and pay to bump into glory. Last year, human beings globally spent $1.1 trillion going to glorious places. We call it vacation and tourism. $1.1 trillion were spent to find glory in another place. We spent $125 billion at casinos trying to have that out-of-body, amazing, otherworldly experience of hitting the jackpot. $125 billion at casinos, $70 billion on lotto tickets on top of that. We spent $20 billion on diets and weight loss programs for the glorious beach body that's always a little bit further than our grasp. We spent $11 billion on porn and other, other stuff like that on the internet because you're wired for glory and we'll take it wherever we can find it, even if it means stealing it. And the advertisers know that you're wired for glory too. And they know that you have trouble seeing glory. And so that's why commercials, advertisements, windows displays, whatever they are, Facebook ads, what they are is a parading before you, a ton of new products with better and better adjectives, glorious adjectives. The moisture-wicking technology on this raincoat is so much better than all the other rubber raincoats that humanity has invented. You've got to have this one. It's glorious. This phone with two more pixels than the last phone is worth 500 of your dollars. It's glorious. It will take you to heaven. And we worship because the ad agencies know that we are glory-seeking creatures made for glory, made for awe, made for amazement, but have trouble seeing it all around us. And so they repackage it, the same product, and they bring it before our eyes and we pay to get it. Psalm 19 is really encouraging to me because you might not notice it if you just read it through. It sounds really encouraging and positive. You will not find a verse in Psalm 19 that says, you have trouble finding glory, seeing the glory all around you. But it's, it's implicit. It's in the shadows. It's in the background. David, God through David, is correcting your vision. It's like shouting to a person who's asleep, wake up to what's already all around you. Glory is around you 360 degrees. Right now, you can't look any direction without seeing glory. You can't go back to your dorm or your house later without bumping into glory. You won't have a meal later without tasting glory. You'll smell glory before you go to bed. You'll hear something glorious. And Psalm 19 knows you can't see it. And so it's saying that's where it is. This is what it looks like. This is where you can find it. And so that's the kind of the second point. The first was you're hardwired for glory. The second is there's glory all around you. God is actually preaching to you about it through creation and through scripture. We'll unpack this in just a second. 
But there's glory all around you. God is literally preaching it to you through creation. Look at the first few verses of the passage. This is all speech language. The heavens declare. The heavens, which means the skies, the Hubble telescope pictures, whatever. They declare to you the glory of God every night. He says the skies proclaim, they proclaim the beautiful work of God's hand. Day after day pours forth speech. Night after night reveals knowledge. Their voice goes out into all the earth. Their words ripple out to the edges of the world. That's how much glory is here. And it's being broadcast and advertised and heralded every minute of every day. And every minute of every night. So David's saying in this psalm, not only are we hardwired for glory, and not only do you and I crave that jaw-dropping, eye-popping, mind-blowing glory that Eli picks up on. Not only are we made for it, not only do we crave it, but God is literally drawing your attention to it every day through creation itself and through scripture. We're literally surrounded by it. We're literally inundated by it. Which makes it odd from this perspective when we have the thought, where's God? Or I haven't seen him lately. Or people say God is hiding. He's reluctant. He doesn't make it easy to sense his presence. Psalm 19 at the very least and what Sean read earlier, Romans 1, helps us locate what the problem is if we can't see God. Is it a problem of evidence? Is it a problem of testimony? Is it a problem of declarations? Is it a problem of glory? Or do we have trouble seeing it right under our nose? Psalm 19 says that all of creation is preaching, declaring, proclaiming. It has a voice. It speaks. But about what? What's the content? What's the message that it's saying? He says it only in verse 1. The heavens declare, and he answers what they declare. They declare the glory of God. Second part of verse 1, the skies, they proclaim. What do they proclaim? The work of his hands. In other words, the creation, the birds, the sky, the thunderstorms, your own physiology, everything you've learned in school, the little weeds growing up in the asphalt cracks, what they are all proclaiming to you. Their song, their speech, their sermon is He is so good. He is so good. He is so good. He is so powerful. He is so gracious. He is so kind. He is so detail-oriented. He is so lavish that a parking lot weed would get purple petals like that. He is so powerful that thunder would brattle windows. He is so beautiful that honeysuckle would smell so pleasing to my nose, that steak would taste so awesome to my tongue. He is so good to you. He cares for his creation. He loves his world. That's the testimony. That's what it means that they proclaim the glory of God, that they pour forth speech. Creation, from the second you wake up, it starts, or at least your perception of it starts. It is a Niagara Falls of God's goodness his power, his presence, his nearness, his love. And it's inundating everybody with preaching that that is what God is like. That's what it means 
that creation is pouring forth speech. So the reason we get so bored with life, well, first we should say, how do we get so bored with life if this is reality? I get that you don't feel this is reality. But when God looks at his world, he who has eyes to see sees a waterfall of grace every day. And I know you don't feel like that. How do we get so bored with life? How are we so blind to glory? Why is it that it might have been a year and a half or two years or never that you felt a thrill when someone's talking about Jesus? The first reason is we can't see him even though we're surrounded by evidence. We've already talked about that. We grow familiar. We, we look at other places. But the second is because we look at the things that he has made and we expect out of a finite thing, infinite, transcendent blessing. So we look at things that God has made, finite things, like a sunset, like food, like sex. And we demand out of those finite things, infinite payoff. Does that make sense? Do you understand? That's just simple logic, right? There's no way a finite thing can give an infinite payoff. There's no way something that's not transcendent, that's not otherworldly, bigger than reality itself, can deliver to you something that is transcendent, that is otherworldly, something that's spiritual, something that's truly amazing. And that's the other reason why we get so bored. And it's why we tire of everything we put our hand to. Every hobby you've ever tried at some point, maybe it's, you're still with it. Maybe you still like playing guitar. Maybe you still like that sport or rock climbing or working out or whatever. But there come seasons where we get tired of it. We grow bored with it. We grow weary of it. And it's not even because necessarily we idolize it. Sometimes it's just because it's a finite thing. This has a serving size on it. It'll only provide this much joy, this much satisfaction, this much security. But problems come when we want more and more and more out of it. This is why the person that you're dating was really glorious in the first few months. And now you're having to work to love them. It's like the shine is rubbing off a little bit. And you're having to work to love. It's like the restaurant that you used to go to. Every year of college, I had a different place that I would go study at late at night. And I burned out on each of them. It was IHOP one year, Subway another year, an Italian place the other year, McDonald's one year. I ate there. I studied there at night so much that I got so sick of it. We, we wear things out. I'm ashamed to say I probably expected something transcendent and spiritual and otherworldly out of those meals. And it wasn't delivering. I grow tired of it. I go on to the next thing. The hobby you used to have. The friend you had in high school that you don't talk to anymore. I ran into this a lot at UGA. I had students. And, and you, you struggle with this. You have friends or you yourself struggle with this. But every December at UGA... Some of the freshmen who came in would start really struggling with, can I thrive at this school or do I need to go back home? One of my friends, Jimmy, all the time he was at UGA, he was dreaming of being at LSU with all of his high school buddies. That's where the glory was. Because he's hardwired for glory, he eventually transferred back there. And then he called me nine months later. And he said, Ben, LSU is just as hard as UGA. I'm having trouble connecting with those old high school friends. I'm coming back to UGA. He's still there today. Uh, there, and I was so proud of him, and he had to go through that experience to realize what we're talking about here. We expect transcendent, infinite payoffs 
to finite blessings, good things that God has made. Think about it this way. The, the predicament we're in, we expect to wring a gallon of water out of a little tiny kitchen sponge. And so we, we, we wring that wet sponge, a good, beautiful, awesome thing that God has made, like food or music or intellect or whatever else. And we wring that sponge out and we get a few ounces of water. And we're like, okay, cool. And we wring it again and we get another ounce or so. And we're like, okay, cool. Just got to wring it more. And we wring it again and no more water comes out. And eventually that sponge dries up and we grow tired and frustrated from wringing it out and we throw it away and we go looking for another sponge thinking that the next sponge I find is going to give me that gallon of glory, that gallon of water. And we live thirsty lives because we think the sponge has a gallon of water in it. Nothing in the created realm, nothing in the created realm has a gallon of glory in it. It's got a little bit of glory in it. But it will not satisfy you. And everybody in the room right now, tonight, is looking to something or some things to get a gallon of glory from it. Your relationship, your internship, your job prospects, your relationship with your parents, your Facebook feed, whatever it is, we're chasing it. And we want it. We want the thrill. We want the amazement. We want transcendence. We want worship. And God won't let you have it. Because to do so would be to destroy you if you actually found that. Every smell you love, every personality, Myers-Briggs thing that you click with best that's glorious to you, the music that's better to your ear than anybody else's ear, the art that moves you, the movies that give you goosebumps, all of those beautiful, good, awesome things, they are designed to reveal God, not replace him. They're designed to increase your love of him. That's what you're supposed to do When you taste the best drink you've ever had or the best coffee you've ever had or the best beer you've ever had. That's what you're supposed to think is God is so good that he made this for enemies like us. That's what it means that creation reveals his glory. It doesn't replace it. It reveals God. It doesn't replace him. I want to end kind of with this, this idea, get a little theological for about 15 seconds. Theologians say that God reveals himself two ways. He has two books that you can read to know him. One book is the book of creation. We call that general revelation because it reveals him in a general, vague kind of way. And then we have the Bible, the other book of revelation that reveals God in a very specific, tangible kind of way. Here's the difference between those two things. Think about this. Go into your... Actually, I'm going to take you, let's say I take you to a random room in Garcia. And I give you an hour to go through that person's stuff. You can look at the pictures on the wall, the music on the iPod. Uh, You can look at, I don't know, what's in their fridge, whether they make up their bed, how organized they are. You can look through their homework, their class schedule. You can look at their recent dialed calls, whatever. You get to investigate their room and all the stuff in it for an hour. You would know a lot about that person, right? You would be able to connect the dots and say, they're a diligent person. Their bed's made up. Their room's pretty clean. There's not like eight-month-old milk in the fridge. It's now cheese. This person's got it together. They seem to be a thoughtful person. They have this kind of a music. They like this kind of art. They look at these kind of things on the internet. I get it. But you should never confuse knowing about that person's stuff with knowing that person. That's the difference in general revelation or creation. 
all of the good and beautiful and awesome things about life. You can know a lot about God. Sean read earlier, you can know his power, his presence, his divinity. Psalm 19 says you can know he's glorious and good and generous. But you cannot look at the world around you or the experiences you've had or the dreams you have and deduce from that in a specific way what God is like. You can't know him simply through that stuff. You can know about him just like you can know about that person by seeing the stuff they have on their wall. But if you want to get to know that person, they are going to have to come into that room and they're going to have to start talking to you. And they're going to have to say, this is who I am. This is what I'm about. And in God's case, this is exactly what he does. He steps into his world. He doesn't just decorate his world with little signs that remind you about him. He steps into this glorious world. The king of glory himself comes. Because he doesn't leave it to your intellect or your intuition to connect all the dots and figure out what he's like. He comes in person through Jesus into his world to re-aim glory glory seekers, to fix blind eyes, to open them back up to him. And that is what scripture is. Scripture is the account of the God who came to this glorious world to save people with glory problems who aren't amazed anymore at the world they live in and the God who made them. This second half of this psalm, if you're wondering what it's talking about, it's talking about that second book of Revelation, the Bible. This is what the Bible is able to do for you that creation is not able to do for you. The Bible is able to refresh your soul. Does your soul need refreshing? Do you need to be taken by the hand and led to a place of marvel and captivation and astonishment again? Did you know that God's revelation of himself in the Bible is able to refresh your soul? Creation can't do that. Exercise can't do that. Food can't do that. Music can't do that in a holistic way. It can do it in a little bit of way, but not in a gallon size of glory. Scripture can. Did you know the Bible is able to make the simpletons wise? Do you feel like you're an idiot when it comes to the things of God? You don't know what questions to ask. You don't know much about him. You feel like you've been in church a long time, but you're still like, I just don't get it. I don't know how to connect the dots. I feel foolish. I feel dumb when it comes to spiritual stuff. Did you know that the Bible can make you wise? That it can school you and grow you and teach you. Creation can't do that. School can't do that. Books can't do that. But the Bible can. Do you know it can give joy to your heart? This is the middle of the semester, y'all. I feel the same pattern you do. This is the doldrums. The wind doesn't blow in the middle of the semester. You row. And you grow weary. Do you need joy in your heart? Do you know the Bible can do what nothing else can do? It can solidly, durably, untouchably bring joy back to you. Because it can bring you back to the God who is joy. This is all right out of the passage. Did you know scripture can give light to the eyes? When it says brings light to the eyes, it means bring the glimmer back. The twinkle in the eye back. It's not talking about removing cataracts. It's talking about 
putting the glimmer back in your eye, the astonishment, the amazement, the marvel, the captivation, the Bible. If you're wondering tonight because you feel bored, dull, lifeless, stagnant, it's the scripture which shows you the God of glory himself in high definition and shows you his grace in high definition. That is what can put the glimmer back in your eye. The second book, not the first book. The first book points you to the second book, the Bible, where God introduces himself to you. He steps into the room of his world and he says, here I am. This is what I'm about. This is what I've done for you. And this is why David talks about this God in the most intimate and personal way. When you see Lord all capitalized in the Old Testament, that's not a word for God. It's not a generic word for God. Lord in the Old Testament is like God's first name. He told Moses said, God, who should I tell the people has sent me? God says, tell them I am. Hebrew, Yahweh. This word in all caps means Yahweh. David is talking with his God on a first name basis. The way sons talk to fathers, the way friends talk to each other. Little tiny David, huge transcendent God. He sees his glory and he's able to talk to him. Lord, 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 the statutes of the Lord, the precepts of Yahweh, the commands of Yahweh, the fears of Yahweh is pure and it endures. And this is why David is able to say at the very end, he's able to call God his rock and his redeemer. I love the pronouns there. Not a rock and a redeemer, but my rock and my redeemer. The lifter of my head, the restorer of my joy, the refresher of my soul, the one who puts the glimmer back in my eye, the one who teaches me to see again. That's who David sees. He sees a glorious God. And I think that's why this David was able to write half the Psalter. Musicians will tell you, sometimes creativity dries up. And if you want your creativity to come back, your muse to come back, to be able to write music again, and to write songs again, to write stories again, you have to go stand in the presence of a master. You have to see glory again. Friends, when's the last time you've seen glory? When's the last time you've been amazed? When's the last time you have heard a sermon or a message that thrilled you to your bones? Do you know God is capable of doing that for you? 